If you had never seen a Larry Cohen film, you're going to be in for some really radically unique entertainment. Larry started as a writer, eventually became a director to protect Larry the writer. Wow, what was that? Larry Cohen is so much the invisible man. It's entirely possible to have seen a lot of his work without knowing you were seeing his work. His movies have this energy and this tact. Man, but he makes these great little films. There's a brilliance, there's a childish naughtiness about him. He would do things that were dangerous. Larry would not only shoot in the streets of New York, he would drive cars up on the sidewalk in the streets of New York. This is New York City. They just get out of the way when you're coming. Let's face it, anybody will put up with anything if they think a movie is being shot. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Backlot, a very special episode we got today. I'm Eric Connor, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. A couple months ago, uh, we were going to have one of Hollywood's most legendary filmmakers, Larry Cohen, come to speak at our school uh, in promotion of the documentary about him, King Cohen, created by Steve Mitchell and Matt Verbois. Verbois? That's good. That works. How do you pronounce it? <laughs> I, I say Verbois, but you could say Verbois or Ver... It, I'm back and forth on it myself, so... Okay, then I feel less bad. <laughs> yeah, don't um, worry about it. So, as you can tell, at least Matt's here. Steve's here, too, as he... I am. Yeah, see, now I got proof both of them are here. The cat's we out are. of the bag. <laughs> we will be talking about their documentary about Larry Cohen, King Cohen, and really taking a look at Larry Cohen's career. And so he was going to come here with them to talk about the documentary... And unfortunately, he passed away. Yeah, it was, it, yeah, it was, it was, it was very quick. quick, very quick. And, uh, I mean, I was looking forward to meeting him, but also one thing I'm always pushing my students to do is, like, get to know the films that came before the films. Like, when we were kids, we had UHF, and you would catch, like, kung fu theater, right. horror movies, sci-fi, all this stuff that was from before my time, but was so much part of my time as a kid before, really, cable and video and everything else, and... So I was so excited to bring Larry Cohen, who represented so many eras of Hollywood, and was so sad to see that we had lost him. Um, and you guys have created such a beautiful tribute to not only the work of Larry Cohen, but also to the work of a bygone era of Hollywood. Yeah, that was, it's, it's interesting. We started out making a movie about Larry, but as we were cutting it, one of the byproducts of the cutting and, and of course, when Larry was working is that we're sort of tipping our hat to a way movies used to be made. We were tipping our hat to the way, uh, I guess, in some way, movies were being exhibited in those days. I mm -hmm. mean, Larry had said that if the movie got made and it was remotely coherent and commercial, it was going to get in a theater. And growing up in New York City, one of the things that was really interesting was Old Times Square, not the current Times Square, was a place where major studio pictures would open. Yeah. But when they stunk and they weren't making money and they weren't selling popcorn, these Larry Cohen-type pictures could sneak in. And so Larry loved the idea that you know his movies were playing on Broadway because Larry was from New York, like I am. And, and Larry wasn't only from New York, he was New York. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe New York was him, I don't know. <laughs> well, the DNA is... You know, it's in there, and it's part of who he is. I mean, as Matt can agree, Larry could be very blunt, which is a New York trait, or at least people perceive it as a New York trait. But, you know, Larry was, you know, a New Yorker. Someone once asked me, what is the sort of connecting tissue in his movies? It took me, I don't know, a whole bunch of interviews to figure this out. But 
Larry was a critic. He was a social critic, mm -hmm. and all New Yorkers are critics. And so that was part of what made a Larry Cohen movie a Larry Cohen movie. You know, you don't have discussions about movies when you're a, a New Yorker. Nah, nah. You have arguments. He once told me, he says, if I wanted to know what you thought, I would tell you what to think. And, and it wasn't a shock to me because I, that mindset was, you know, part of my own DNA. So yeah, I, sure. I get That's it. a director's, you know, what is it like when they would ask Hitchcock if something didn't make sense? Well, why are you doing this? And he would be like, the audience is going there because I'm taking them there. Right. You know, and that's, <laughs> that was Larry. And, and yeah, he, his movies would certainly reflect whatever his thoughts on any given topic were. And I think that's, that's how he would come into genre sideways. <laughs> from a different angle than most people would kind of attack genre usually sort of straight on. He's he's more like, well, you know, New York City politics are screwed up, so what if there was a giant, you know, lizard on the, you know, the way he would right. work these things in or, you know. Larry wanted to have asses in the seats. Yeah. And Larry turned to genre after Bone, which is a great film. Had it been a success, we might have had a whole different Larry Cohen filmography. Right, right. But it wasn't. And Larry somehow realized that he can do the kind of work he wanted to do through the camouflage of genre. Mm -hmm. You know, his social criticism, you know, he can take on a subject that he wants to take on. Right. I remember him saying to me or to us that he said sometimes a script would start with an idea for a scene. And not like the opening teaser or something like that. It would be maybe a scene in the middle of the picture. It might be you know having a moral argument about something. Right. You know, a lawyer is arguing with a cop or whatever it is, and somehow he had the ability to just take a nugget and expand it into a tapestry that was a film script. I just don't know how the hell he did it, but he did. And you know, Landis, John Landis says in the movies that, or was it Dante said that he was an idea machine. Yeah, Dante said, and yeah. and he was a machine. Landis said he was very fertile. That's what Landis yeah. said. And both were correct. I think that's what made him kind of a unique creative voice is just the way he thought about story. Well, even like It's Alive, I heard him say he saw one of his kids, I guess, in the crib. Yeah. It's like if the kid could get out of there, he'd kill us all. And he's like, that's my next film. <laughs> right. You know, just by looking at his baby. Yeah. And out of that comes one of the great horror films of it's that like decade. Iconic. Uh... Iconic creature, iconic idea. I always felt that the form followed the idea, that he never tried to crowbar the idea to the form of filmmaking. He just, he had the idea, he improvised yeah. all the time. And yeah, so did I, he ever do storyboards? Oh no, no. Yeah, no. He, didn't, he didn't do. Bite your tongue. Even uh, <laughs> we, I don't, I don't know in the doc, but you know, producer Paul Curta, who made a, a number of movies with him, and you know, there's probably some embellishment here, but not much. He doesn't think there was like a call sheet on Larry Cohen movies, <laughs> and Larry knew it too, which is why he knew at a certain budget level he wouldn't be directing, mm -hmm. because once you cross a certain budget level, the studio obviously is not going to put up with, we don't know where we're shooting today. That's not how he they also operate. He was the producer, and he wrote the checks, and so he just controlled everything. And for Larry, you know, a call sheet was, meet me at Grant's tomb at right. 7 o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah, and that's what we're doing. I think the fact that he worked in the industry and television for you know quite a good while before he even started directing the movies it's like a two-headed beast he knew mm. the ones he produced and directed were completely under his control they could be improv they can go the way his desire wanted them to go and then at the same time 
he can write, you know, guilty as sin for Michael Eisner right. and would go through the rigmarole of, of shaping the script. Cause I would see this, we did a script reading that's in the documentary where some people read one of his scripts and you could sort of tell within two pages, Oh, this one is a really polished one that he had to yeah. rewrite, rewrite. It also though, wasn't as bonkers as, you know, the Larco script, which was always just sort of a rough draft and they mm-hmm. would just kind of, Use it as a springboard. Well, one of the drafts was the shoot. Right. And then the, the final draft, of course, was the edit. Mm-hmm. You know, when Larry was at his best, he had the outrageousness of the ideas, but he was always wired into who people are. I mean, Cue the Winged Serpent is is as good as it is because of Moriarty. Yeah. And without Moriarty's character, that movie isn't that movie. So Larry had the ideas, but they were always grounded because Larry... You know, Larry liked actors and he liked performers and stuff like and that. And they liked him. Yeah, they remember coming to play. I mean, that that was kind of the, the main thing was, man, those were fun days. You know, I really got to flex my, like my muscles. It's like being at camp right, or yeah. acting school. Yeah, you right. Know, exactly what Eric Roberts said. Eric Roberts said, you know? said that very thing yeah. yeah, about being at camp. It seems like actors who worked with Larry Cohen... There was like true love there. I mean, it it feels like this was so much about like a family that he created, a repertory of actors and performers. Yeah, he who... did. On, on the movies he directed, he really kind of worked with the same you know cinematographers, same editors, yeah. same you know close knit. And, and 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 not afraid to work with actors who were a little quote unquote past their prime. When it's like, well, they they say in the documentary, you have an Oscar, but the the phone's not ringing. Well, they were maybe past their prime in terms of younger executives casting them in movies, but they were immortals in Larry's mind because Larry was an enormous film fan. It was a chance to work with, you know, some of his heroes. Yeah. It was a treat for Larry, but also Larry was the producer and he knew that they were good. Somebody once told me who worked for Roger said that Roger is really a producer first and a director second. Roger, the producer, always hired Roger as director because he was the cheapest guy in town and the fastest and he could control him. And Larry, you know, all of these guys who work in low budget knew about speed and efficiency. I'm just having flashbacks of, you know, us taking 30 minutes to set up our, you know, shot for whatever interview. And he's like, I could have done a movie by now. What what are you doing? You know, Lynn, we What's loved taking we, so long. We loved every minute of it. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Part of why Larry always wanted to hire good actors is he knew that he probably could get them to do what they could do in one take and move. And then he also worked with creative actors who could give him more than he would put on the page. Yeah. I mean, Moriarty, I mean, he worked with Moriarty five times. And Moriarty loved working Larry's way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and- having the ability to sort of flex his muscles and play. Yeah. I mean, Michael Moriarty, like, what he adds to those films is like he takes a role that on paper might be just the cop, but finds something more, something interesting, you know. And I love it, that section of the documentary about his hairpiece <laughs> and the argument of whether or not Larry Cohen bought him hairpieces. I think is one of the comedic highlights of a very well, funny documentary. You know, we we had that Larry Fred Williamson he said he said thing, mm-hmm. and then. I noticed I had the material with Moriarty to do one of those. And then the back third of the movie, we had yet another one. So it was a motif that just kind of presented itself. (laughs) You know, when you cut a documentary, you have, if you're lucky, 
a ton of stuff to work with. And mm -hmm. just with Larry alone, we had a ton. I don't know, Matt, what did we have between 15 and 20 hours or at, so? At least. Just pure interviews of at, him. Well, at part him. of it was interviews then. I had, yeah, we I had did three, about, three we or did four about... hours of B-roll uh, at a convention mm -hmm. where I just followed him around yeah, the camera for you, a weekend. You know, we went back after our first three days of full interviews. We were back at that house like five additional times doing just more. It was great to have a subject like Larry who would always say, come on over to the house, you know, whatever you need. You <laughs> You're know? always going to get something too because, you know, he's he's just such a uh, encyclopedia of stories and film history. It's like just when you think you've got him on as many subjects as you, you know, figure there is, there's stuff that comes up in interview number eight. You're like, wow, why, you know, why weren't we talking about this? Or, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing. For as many stories as we got, and then as many stories as we've heard, Larry took a bunch of stories with him to the great movie theater beyond, yeah, you know, but I, th I think we were pretty good in getting a lot of it. We miss him a lot, and it's part of because he, he, I think it was Chicago, we were at a festival in Chicago, and we were just at a coffee place, and Bobby Darren came over, the Mac the Knife was playing, and I was like, if I ask Larry Cohen about Bobby Darren just off the cuff... 99% I'm going to get an amazing story. Mm -hmm. So you, you give it a shot. You go, hey, Larry, Mac the Knife. You know, did you know Bobby Darren? No, um, we were friends. You know, and <laughs> you, you go off on this wonderful, but it wasn't It wasn't in a showman, like he wasn't bragging. He loves entertainment and he loves old movies and he loves people. And it's it's he greatly admired these performers, whether they were movie stars or singers he was excited that he got to intersect with them in some way. He he was a fan. And I'm sure for them, you know, like he talked about how in the 80s, 90s, how the model of Hollywood changed and suddenly you had more guys with MBAs and JDs making creative decisions. He made an interesting comment in a conversation. It wasn't in the doc. It was just something he said. And it was about, you know, writing for television. And they were talking about the writer's room. And he just sort of was like, I don't. Like, there was no writer's room. I wrote branded, you know. I wrote, uh, you know, there was no, what are you talking about, writer's room? Well, and those were the shows he controlled. I right, mean, when he right. did, he did a show called Blue Light, which was a World War II espionage show with uh, Robert Goulet, of all people. And I think he wrote every single episode, and he used to dictate the scripts. <laughs> yeah. He dictated the scripts to the secretaries and wore them out. They had to be constantly replaced because <laughs> he was just a – my nickname for him has always been the Energizer Bunny. You know, Larry, right, 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 the Larry right. we met was not young, but still the energy was there. And, and I can only imagine what he was like yeah. when he was really young. Yeah, the other thing was when he pitched shows that he wasn't running, I'm sure Larry could just – extemporaneously just throw a story together and they would say yeah okay that sounds fine and he would go write it mm -hmm. now yeah what was it he made some reference where he's talking about oh you go into a room now and there are all of these legal pads and they're <laughs> writing things down and 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 he's going who are they and why are they entitled to an opinion he just didn't want to deal with people i mean he always said he wanted to do it himself he didn't want anybody to tell yeah. him what to do and larry is I'm surprised I didn't think of this earlier, but Larry's one of the very few people who dictated his own career for the better part of 40-some-odd years. Mm -hmm. His career was on his terms. And as Larry would often say to us, get paid. Yeah, You know, he wrote a lot of scripts that weren't produced, and he got paid. 
And so he was able to sort of have it both ways. And, and he's very fortunate because almost no one can say that they've had it it's, both ways. It's like he's got this unworldly combination of an independent producer's mindset and ability married with the fact that he's a really good screenwriter. That's the thing is like, you know, hey, I can't get a movie off the ground. I can always write. I can always pitch. I can always. And he had the ideas to back it up. His ideas were were sellable. They were commercial. And, and he could write himself out of a corner. Yep. He, you know, the section about Betty Davis, when she quit the picture, he's like, okay, well. Well, I think he liked that. I think he was, yeah. I think on the set, certainly the movies he produced, right? He was constantly writing. He was always writing himself out of corners. Oh, sure. Because yeah. stuff was just always happening. Larry has this, I don't know if this is a, a New York thing or not, but I'm going to, I'm going to say that it is. Larry willed things to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, New Yorkers don't accept what they don't want to accept. Okay, Betty Davis is leaving the picture. Fine, I'll solve that problem. And he was also able to figure out a way to convince the money people that it was a way to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Larry never was in a corner, you know, when he was running around New York City and, you know, without permits and stuff like that. He always figured out a way because he would not accept anything else. Mm-hmm. People don't do that now. Even, you know, if you're making a $200,000 movie today, God, it's life and death and everybody worries about everything. And Larry's whole attitude was, you know, screw it. I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm going to solve my problem because he figured that somehow he was going to make it work in the editing room. You know, as a young, I know everything about movie making fan, you know, I'm saying, oh, well, his movies aren't really terribly well made, you know, yet I always remember them. And it's sort of the imperfection of his pictures made them edgy and made them Larry Cohen movies. Yeah, so now all these, his all these his years later, yeah. you know, I realize that, that it's all part and parcel of what a Larry Cohen movie is. The first card at the end of all of his Larco movies, it says a Larry Cohen film. And that credit is earned. Mm-hmm. It's all through him. It's all through his filters. And, and, and we tried to, to take, because that energy is unique, and that kind of leaked into the doc, too. I, I remember the conversation. I don't know if Steve does. But we had early conversations when we were doing this as to, you know, traditionally, traditional doc, You even though you're doing the interview over the course of months or maybe even years, mm-hmm. you're, you're replicating your backgrounds and the clothing is the same. And we, we just kind of thought, well, if Larry was making a documentary, would because <laughs> well, it kind of came up. We were right. moving locations and we're like, well, do we re- and it was like no, because he the energy of it takes you through his pictures, and um, there's a natural unforced quality to right. everything, and it's spontaneous. Listen, there is no crazier movie in his canon than Hell Up in Harlem. Yeah, Hell Up in Harlem was the we got to have a sequel fast. Right, and Larry would say no problem, and he literally rushed into it with I don't even know if he had anything close to a script. He knew stuff he needed to get, and he was shooting it concurrently with uh, with It's Alive. He was shooting It's Alive, and and by the way, he's working seven days a week. Sure. Yeah. So he's doing It's Alive Monday through Friday in California, and then he's going to New York on the weekend and grabbing stuff for Hell Up in Harlem. What did he tell us? Like the, the editor didn't know what movie he was cutting. Oh yeah. Like, at some point, he was like, "What? Which movie? Which one is this?" Was that the one where they were in the airport? 
Yeah. They're on the, the baggage claim, and they're fighting on that. There's a gun. That's... They go up into <laughs> the belly of the beast, they're climbing up to where the bags get put on the conveyor yeah. belt. Like, that isn't any idea where he had no permits for that. Yeah, not at all. And... Morant, how did no one ever get shot making his movies? Like, that's that that's a really insane. good question, actually. I, he did say at one point, a lot of it is just the bravado of doing it. Like, sometimes people back in the day wouldn't question you because they figured, well, you had to have gotten permission. There's no, like, it must have already happened. He said when he was shooting on the streets of New York, and shooting in the 70s was very difficult. I don't think they had the mayor's office at that time. So it was a lot harder to get away with shooting in New York. And whenever he would see a cop drive by, what Larry would do is he would look at them, smile, and wave. <laughs> and the cops figure, I guess they must be kosher. Yeah. Right, so right, 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 they would right. drive on and Larry would get his shot and then probably hop in a cab with his cast and crew and get out of there. You know, obviously this is a, a film institution. And so on one yeah. hand, it's like the bravado and the chutzpah. It's like, oh, you got to love them. <laughs> and his other hand, for me as an educator who works with these students, I'm like, guys, yeah. this is the kind of stuff that could get you arrested. Right. That was... This is the kind of stuff that can create so much trouble and yet larry cohen found a way well he also did it 40 some odd years ago yeah which helps i mean we we live we live in a different world yeah yeah but still the lesson that you learn from larry i mean speaking to filmmakers is believe in what you're doing make sure you get it be brave be bold don't be crazy but larry was crazy i mean some of the stuff that he did was just legitimately crazy it was also like everything was how can it help me in the movie so if waving to the cop didn't work then option b was does the cop want to be in the movie that's (laughs) true they could do that a lot you know hey will you help us out would you like to be or you know one of my stories that i love i think it was on special effects at the end of the day they needed a police car to arrive at the location as part of the scene and they just didn't have the budget for it or they didn't have it set up. So I think it's one of those instances. It's got to be a first where he called the police on his own production so that he could shoot the police arriving. Larry was very clever. In fact, on the, in that scene in special effects, one of the things we had to do was we had to tear a lot of scenes apart for the clips and using mm-hmm. clips to illustrate moments in the picture. And I got the impression that once the cop showed up to answer the call and they said, oh, there's no real problem or anything like that. I actually think a couple of the cops performed in Oh, no, that he, scene. he said he did. He said okay. they did, yeah. So he actually yeah. so he did he got the cops there on a yeah. false pretense <laughs> and then off, it said, hey, you know, you're here. You mind just sort of taking your guns out and pointing yeah. them? Yeah. And, and you look at the cops and if you're from New York, you go, those are real New York City cops. Yeah. You know, Larry was resourceful. And he enjoyed that. That stimulated the writer in him, too. So he would arrive at a location, even if it wasn't the location he had originally planned, and he would just rewrite all the dialogue for that scene. He was uh, just open to any kind of possibility. If the actor turned out to be a musician like Moriarty did, then it's like, you know what? We're not doing this office scene. It's going to be at a bar now. And now the whole character is changing. If it could be better or it could be changed or it could work, he would he would do it. Well, it was still his choice. Yeah, it was yeah, up to yeah. him, sure. Mm-hmm. Larry's confidence was just innate. I mean, it was it was who he was. He probably never had an unconfident moment in his life, certainly on a set. And so he was able to improvise. And being able to do that is kind of a gift, but it's also a learned craft skill, whatever you want to call it. 
And if you want to be a filmmaker, you have to be able to say, you know, Larry could come up with a solution immediately, but you might have to take a couple of deep breaths and think about something for a couple of minutes and say, okay, why don't we do this? And Larry was always totally available. And that's a gift. It's, it's People you, don't always yeah. think that good on their feet, especially if they're surrounded by big crews. Now, when he made some of these movies, especially Special Effects and Perfect Strangers, those were Larry's two New York underground movies. Right. I so mean, it's like a skeleton crew. And yeah, I mean, if he had more... They were like, like non-union, really yeah, small. Totally yeah. non-union. If they had 10 people on that crew, that would be a lot. In fact, he wasn't even using SAG actors at the time. It's interesting. I think Special Effects, given the lack of resources that movie has... It's actually, in many ways, I think, one of his best pictures. I mean, it's actually more designed mm-hmm. than his movies would tend to be. Like, you, you brought know? up After Hours, and I feel like there's kind of like a, a stylistic sort of connection between those two films. They're, they're definitely, Steve's very right. Like, if Larry actually does have the time in his schedule, and the location is solid, or he has a little bit more money, which was not the case in special effects... And a great DP. Glickman really shot that picture. And creativity doesn't cost money. The use of red in that movie, that there was a color scheme and temperature that we don't usually see in Larry's pictures. Yeah. More stylized. And yet, I mean, that movie cost, I I mean, nothing, even on the terms of the budgets of the day. And Larry, listen, Larry wrote, produced, and directed it. So Larry got paid. Larry always wanted to be paid. Larry was a capitalist. Yeah, he was. He was an artist, but he was a capitalist. And that's something I think that his television work taught him, that when he, instead of starting immediately as an independent filmmaker, he had a lot of industry experience before he started. So he was was like, oh, I'm getting myself, I'm paying. You know, if he got a budget from AIP or whatever it was, Larry wasn't skimping on his script fee and he wasn't skimping on his director's fee. He'd skimp on the movie as long as he provided what the producers or the people paying for the movie wanted. Didn't put his own money in. No. It was one of those those interesting situations where he was spending money like it was coming out of his own pocket. Mm -hmm. And in point of fact, it was. Because the extra $50 he might spend on something is $50 that is not going to go to him. But Larry was also fortunate, you know, that luck and timing thing is he made a good living pretty much out of the gate. Yeah. After a somewhat short period of time in the 60s, he was able to sort of know that he wasn't writing for money to survive, which is what a lot of writers have to go through. He was writing to make a living. So in terms of talking about how this documentary even started, I was surprised that it sounds like you didn't necessarily, you knew his work really well, but it sounds like you didn't necessarily have a personal connection with him Not at when all. you started this. That, yep. that surprised the heck out of me. Well, I was looking at his IMDb page one day, and I knew all his feature credits. I knew a lot of his television. But what surprised me was all the stuff I didn't know, mm-hmm. that there was a much bigger Larry Cohen portfolio of credits, produced credits, than I even knew. And I was thinking about, trying to do a feature. And I had worked for Roger, and Roger had his own documentary, Corman's World. And I said, I don't know, maybe there's something here. But I didn't know Larry, and I had originally thought about doing it through crowdfunding. But you can't start a a crowdfunding type of thing unless you have a subject who says, yeah, okay. I knew somebody who I think knew Lorene Landon, 
And Lorene gave this person that I knew Larry's phone number. So oh, you didn't it, even go through his representation, just through what, personal what representation? <laughs> you know, I don't think it, I don't think at that point he had any representation. And I had to sort of gird my loins and get up the courage. I mean, I've talked to a lot of celebrities. I've interviewed a lot of celebrities, but still, you're you're calling a guy up and said, "Would you let me make a movie about you?" And the phone rings twice. And Larry answers. I mean, I knew Larry's voice from commentary tracks and interviews. Mm -hmm. And I said, hi, I am who I am. I want to do what I want to do. He says, come on over to the house. And I went over to the famous house and had deja vu all over again. And you recognized it immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it was, it, was, it was kind of weird, actually. You it's know. in Bowen. It's in Black Caesar, right? It's in everything. It's in everything. So he answered the door. You know, he said, you want a cup of coffee? I said, yes. We talked about it. He said, he'd be very flattered. If you can get a finance, great. And then... Okay, so Larry was on board, and then you know my my Kickstarter thing was a huge flop. That's so <laughs> I had met Matt socially at Comic Con, and our, our friend says, uh, "Hey, Matt, this is my friend Steve Mitchell." And and, and Matt goes, "Steve Mitchell is? Are you the Steve Mitchell who wrote Chopping, Chopping Mall?" Mall. Uh, and I said, "Yes." And then he goes, "I'm <laughs> a huge made, fan of Chopping Mall." Made in heaven, that's, right? There. You just yeah. got to say Chopping Mall, and I'm, I'm yeah. There. So that was very flattering, and and we became friends socially. And I found out very quickly that Matt and I are cut from similar cloth. We're both movie junkies. I'm a big film music fan, and his label, La La Land, has put out some great, great scores, beautifully produced. So for, I don't know, it was months before I even had the idea of, of calling Matt and, and suggesting this as a project, because Matt had said to me months earlier that he was thinking about doing other stuff, you know, trying to expand the La La Land empire. You know, and true to being pragmatic, it was like, you know, because uh, my business partner, M.V. Gerhard, and I were like, well, we've been doing the soundtracks and we love doing that. We're going to continue doing that, but it'd be maybe entertain some other ideas. And it was always like, well, we don't really have any development money, though, so what can we really do? And so, you know, I always kind of had, well, we want to do stuff, but, you know, I don't know what we can do kind of thing. Yeah. So Steve had to do a little convincing. Well, it, I didn't have to do a lot, though. You know, you said. No, happy to have lunch with Yeah, him. well, that's yeah. exactly it. <laughs> you know, so much convincing. He said, yeah. I, don't, I, don't know if, I, I don't know if now's the time, but let's have lunch. So right. we go have lunch. And I literally finished what I'm eating, and I said, all right, here's my idea. I want to do a documentary about Larry Cohen. Before the end got finished, <laughs> he says, I'm already interested. And yeah, then we talked great. some more about it, and he said, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. And we began this, this there uh, were two piecemeal things, yeah, uh, you know, raising were, of the money. There were two things that sort of galvanized it. One was... Just timing and luck. I'd been watching a lot of clip docs, is what they call them, like Corman's World, where it's, you know, interviews and movie clips. And I had noted that the production companies making these movies were not big companies with deep pockets by any stretch of the imagination. And I said, oh, something's changed in documentary filmmaking yeah. that this is able to be done. So that opened up how fair use now is incorporated into E&O insurance and how there's an actual procedure you can go through to get these things accomplished without, you know, having to pay millions of dollars to make your movie. And, and let me just interject. I actually did some pricing on the cost of clips and everything like that. It was this incredibly Machiavellian process where you would buy domestic clips for a year or two, or you would buy right. for X amount of years, and then in perpetuity yeah. and worldwide and intergalactic and interdimensional. <laughs> well, and so the good news is there had yeah. been an already about a decade's worth 
of fair use documentaries. So we knew that there was a tried and true procedure and you have to work with a very specific kind of legal team. We worked with Donaldson and Califf, who are sort of the the grandfathers, the top dog of this type of fair kind use. Kind of at the vanguard of all of this yeah. stuff. So we knew we were in good hands. And that took your budget from an astronomical amount to amount that was, well, was something that was producible. that was manageable. And then it the became, other the other factor doable, was yeah. was our producing partner Dan McKeon. Dan and I worked as a team to raise the budget, and we did it a number of different ways. But a documentary was ideal because we could raise some and then shoot some and then right, right, raise right. some more and shoot some more. And we were blessed that people wanted to come out to talk about Larry Cohen. So the more that they did, every time we go back to either other investors or partners, you know, by the time we got to Martin Scorsese saying he would be in the picture, it became a lot easier to get the rest of what we needed oh, to right. do. No, yeah. I'm sure, you know, you have an idea, an idea is just an idea, but all of a sudden you're starting to say, yeah, we have an hour with this guy, an hour with right. that guy. People are going, oh, this is real now. Yeah. We had a big name cast. I mean, sure. we, we did. Fabulous and, cast. And, I, and that helps. J.J. Abrams right up front, by the way, is such a smart well, you know what? Uh, can I can I tell the truth on that? Please tell the truth. Like Larry, truth. Larry Cohen strikes again. Yeah. So we originally <laughs> were going to put that as kind of like the Marvel movies do, as the end credits start, and then they stop and surprise, it's J.J. Abrams. Larry was like, what are you talking about? That goes in front before anything else. He's a big name. You don't, you don't, people are leaving the theater. People are leaving the theater. They see your name at the end and, they, and they're going. And so you know, Steve goes off and does his edit and comes back and we're like, son of a bitch. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he's, he's completely yeah, yeah. right. No, he was totally right. And J.J. Abrams holding up the, uh, the doll from yeah. It's Alive. I yeah. mean, it, it's such a, you know, that opening speech is your movie and the heart of the movie in the can right there. You know, and it's interesting. What you're saying is by doing that, it was a tone setter. Yeah. Very Larry's nice. attitude was, he's so famous. He's, everybody knows who he is. Why are you saving him for the end? I mean, and, and when I'm getting like out of control here, that was Larry. That Larry oh, no. wasn't like, you know, you shouldn't save him for the end. No, he would get, you know, he was waving the arms and flailing and yelling at us with the implication that we're complete idiots. But that was Larry. And, you know, damn it, he was right, you know. Well, and I think, too, one thing that's interesting is oftentimes a documentary, you have an antagonist or antagonistic forces. And there's some in this in terms of, you know, he's working against an establishment. But really, in the end of the day, there's not. This is a story of a guy who triumphed repeatedly, and yet it feels like a full story. Like, it doesn't have a traditional well, narrative you, on you, that end, and yet I very much feel like I'm taken on the journey with Steve him. Steve really presented Larry as really Larry is. Larry, you know, has his grumpy moments or his temper moments like any creative force has. But by and large, Larry's heart is really big. He was never mean. He can be difficult sometimes, but he's got a big heart. He truly likes people. He's interested in them. And he's got that spirit of the stand-up comedian that he always originally wanted to be. And and Steve put that guy front and center. And, you know, he's had some tragedy in his life. He's had dark periods in his life. But that's not really what Larry Cohen's about. Mm -hmm. Larry Cohen is about his work, and he loves movies. That's the guy. He's the kid who would try to stay in the theater well, all day. That's the guy. And he was that kid, actually. He would stay in the theater all day. The th thing about Larry that's very interesting is, I think other than film and television and creativity, 
I think Larry only cares about one other thing, and that's politics. I think Larry, you know, Larry doesn't play golf. Larry doesn't have a lot of, you know, bizarre hobbies. He doesn't go skydiving. <laughs> he loves to travel, that much I know. But the thing is, Larry is very focused on his work and creativity and always coming up with something new. Again, form follows content. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty obvious to us right away in the larger sense where we would go with the material. It was the how we got there, which was the process. And we were lucky we didn't have a deadline. That's the other thing that we had going for us. We had no deadline on this movie. And so the whole attitude was, let's get it right. Mm -hmm. Let's not get it done in a hurry. Let's get it right because we're making a first impression. Fast, cheap, good. Pick yeah. two. Yeah. Right, 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 right. You only get two of the three. Yeah, exactly. Well, as we're, we're about to wrap up here, I obviously want to make sure we talk about you guys and what you have in the pipeline now and what you're going to be working on next now that you have conquered the travails of a documentary. Um, more documentaries coming? Like, what's next for La La Land Records? Or is it La La Land Entertainment? Like, do you have a... Uh, we, we have sort of a... a uh, it's La La Land Entertainment is is sort of like the umbrella, but really it's the the record company that's the driving engine of the whole enterprise, and that's MV Gerhard and myself. But it's really MV who's helped craft a seventeen year flow of soundtrack releases that have kept uh, the lights on. Uh, we'd love to continue with things like this. I'd love to produce another you know documentary with Steve. Uh, it's a steep learning curve. The learning curve continues because great, you made a movie. Now what? You, you got to sell the movie, right. right? You know, and so that is an ongoing process. Uh, we're happy that it's widely available now. People can see it uh, either VOD through iTunes or Amazon, or if they're on Shutter, they can watch it on Shutter, or they can buy our Blu-ray, which is from La La Land. Uh, records or you can get it on amazon as well and steve put together really great extras for the blu-ray there's almost like you know about an hour and yeah 20, there's like an, an hour, hour 20 minutes about right. 45 or 50 minutes with the king yes and then a bunch of other stuff with uh, his subjects uh <laughs> yeah and and there were still plenty of things that i didn't use i mean i was very fortunate i had a lot of good stuff you know what's next? Well, we're starting all over again. I've got about five or six different ideas. I got right. one specifically that we're kind of focusing on now, but there are a couple of others. They're all going to be mostly film related because, mm-hmm. in addition to you know doing this stuff, I do a lot of commentary tracks on Blu-rays and stuff like that. So I'm like you know Larry and I are very kindred spirits. I mean you know I'm I'm totally into film and film history, and so any other documentaries I would do would be mostly on that, not entirely, but mm-hmm. mostly. Again, he's always sort of in our in our minds and our hearts and our conversations, you know. And look, he's one of those most unforgettable characters, yeah. and he was a character. And, and I think King Cohen is this beautiful love letter to him, and, and really everything he represented, everything he fought for, and and also to all the people he fought for. He fought for his material. He fought for his art. You know, and the other he, thing too is like the the canon just speaks for itself. So yeah, our documentary aside, people are talking about Black Caesar and it's alive and the stuff. And these movies are are forty going on fifty years old in some cases. That's when you know there's a legacy there because there's plenty of wonderful A list great movies or movies that come out at the time and they're really well received and people are talking about them. But are people talking about them decades later? 
So there's something there. To augment that, I, I think Larry always wanted to be Hitchcock or Michael Curtiz. I think mm -hmm. he wanted to be a mainstream, yeah. old-school Hollywood director. And I don't know sometimes if he was as proud about what he had done as he might publicly say. Mm -hmm. But he said to me, he says, you know, I'm, I'm glad I did these genre movies because they're still talking about them, you know. Yeah. An A-list movie comes out one weekend and, you know, it's forgotten about by Monday. So I think even Larry kind of came to terms with how he felt about his own career. Mm -hmm. Larry, you did okay. What, a, what an incredible legacy you've left behind. What a creative force he was on the planet, the likes of which, of course, we'll never see again. His footprint... Large. Oh, yeah, very much so. <laughs> and I think if you're looking for a primer to get into the world of him, start with King Cohen and work your way outward from there. The thing, too, is that that's something the project, you know, really highlighted for, for me. Like, there's people that love The Invaders, there's people that love Branded, who never watch the horror stuff. Sure. But are fans of Larry because of that. You can or, mention Columbo. Well, that's to the thing too, too is right? when Larry passed and we were kind of handling some of the tweets and the social media of that whole thing, you know, we were getting messages from, "Oh, it's the Columbo fan club and we're so sorry to hear." So it's like at the one hand you got, you know, "I can't believe the stuff is the greatest movie ever made." And then there's the <laughs> Columbo fan club or people that like Branded or The Invaders or and then there were thriller fans, you know, there were people that just loved, you know, phone booth and And then there's you guys around. who loved it all. Yeah, I was like Steve was. I was just surprised at the breadth and the width of there's very, yeah. very few of those guys left. Well, and uh we lost a great one, so yep. when we were talking about doing a, a you know, something in tribute to him, one thing I'll say is uh, as bittersweet as it is, as wistful it is, there's so much joy still in his work exploring his stories, you know, across the realm from the t early days of TV to f Joel Schumacher's phone booth. Right. You know, I mean, we're talking like you really can't get more diverse than that, and he was such a trailblazer. And I think you guys have really done that, that remarkable thing with your documentary of getting it all in there. And so it, hopefully this helps get you some more eyeballs, but really also gets Larry Cohen's work his legacy is all these things he did and you only added to his legacy with king cohen so guys thank you so much and thank you for coming back by the oh, way no, oh our pleasure, our pleasure. Anytime. Right. guys thank you so much You're for right. oh, my this. pleasure this was fun and uh thanks to all of you for listening if you want to check out some of our other q a's you can go to our youtube channel that's youtube.com slash new york film academy this episode was edited and mixed by christian hayden our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by John Sherlock and Dan Mackler, with a special thanks going out to our staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may listen. I'll see you next time. <laughs>